Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's chosen strangers in the world of the diaspora, who lived in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father chose you because of what he knew beforehand. He chose you through the Holy Spirit's work of making you holy and because of the faithful obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. May God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. On account of his vast mercy, he has given us new birth. You have been born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish, an inheritance that is presently kept safe in heaven for you. Through his faithfulness, you are guarded by God's power so that you can receive the salvation he is ready to reveal in the last time. You now rejoice in this hope, even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Your faith is more valuable than gold, which will be destroyed even though it itself tested by fire. Your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you've never seen him, you love him. Even though you don't, don't see him, now you trust him, and so rejoice with glorious joy that is too much for words. You are receiving the goal of your faith, your salvation. This is the word of God for us. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for uh, the gift that is in uh, your resurrection, um, your son's life, death, and resurrection. And uh, we continue uh, in celebration. We continue in remembrance, um, knowing that uh, by you, have, you hold the power of life in your hands and, and you offer that gift to us. And um, we worship you for that, and we listen to your words. So I pray that your words would sink into our hearts and plant a seed. Be with Erica as she gives the message. In your name, amen. I'm back. Uh, Dave is so kind as to um, be very uh, encouraging of me preaching um, when there's something either... And it was on my heart or in the schedule or something at school comes up and I have to do a lot of study and I'm like, hey babe, can I use this study for church and school? And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, also, this just kind of worked itself out, but a lot of churches the Sunday after Easter is called Intern Sunday because the pastor like did so much on Easter and then the week after Easter kind of like takes it off. But like... Let me just say that was not the plan. This just kind of worked out this way. So this was not dangerous to get out of preaching the Sunday after Easter. But as you know, uh, I'm usually up where Andrew is, um, and I am the worship director here. So it seems fitting that uh, we would be talking today a little bit about worship. Um, I think some of you might know this, but I coach. I coach track and field. Um, not like regularly right now I have a lot going on and so I just go as I can um, but I coach at Ballard High School I coach the discus and the shot put um, when I was in college I grew for Whitworth and so this is kind of my opportunity to be back in that because if anybody knows much about throwing uh, you don't really do it post <coughs> or whatever if you like do it as a profession afterwards but it's not like basketball 
or frisbee or something. You just you don't just like do pickup throwing. <laughs> so this is like I get to be back in it with these students um, who are learning how to throw the shot put and discus. Uh, but on Friday, I was I was back at Ballard High School and I hadn't been for a while because life has been super hectic. Um, and their like main throws coach at Ballard is actually an old teammate of mine from Whitworth, uh, but he wasn't a thrower. But he and he's he's good at it. he's like done his research, but he wasn't a thrower. And so I have the ability to come in and say like, hey, I've been there, so I I can like, tell you these details and I notice things differently. So I hadn't been there in a while, and so I show up on Friday, and you know the students they were excited to see me. Plus Nick was out; he he had to work that day. And so um, not only did they get to see me, who they haven't seen in a while, but Nick wasn't there, and so it was kind of like I was the main person doing this. And I got a variety of um, of different responses from the team when I showed up. So some of them were like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so I'm so glad you're here, and you know, I'm so excited to see you." And then they like were super in the zone. And even one of them said, "Like you you don't get to be here very often, and so like I want to like." throw and I want to spend time and I want to like focus on this stuff um, and and one student I had to like stop him from throwing more because he had to meet the next day and you're not supposed to overdo it the day before me but he was like you're here like I need to get all this time in I mean like I need to like work 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 which is like makes me feel good right like somebody wants me there like somebody appreciates me um, and then there are other students that were like oh yeah you're here like man you're so good at this and then they just kind of like continued doing their like chatting and moseying and like they would like chat and like practically skip and giggle as they walked out to like pick up their discs and bring them back. And here I am like, no, like hustle, come on, like we got, we don't get much time to throw, like come on you guys. And then there were some who like didn't hardly acknowledge that I was there. They just kind of kept like doing their thing and not, not paying a lot of attention. Um, to what the practice was. And uh, so there's like this, this range of ways that people responded to my presence there at practice and to who I was and what I brought. Um, and their responses to my presence, to my knowledge, um, to my coaching techniques, things like that, it, it communicated to me certain truths about how they, what they thought of me and what they thought of throwing, right? Because, because their response reflected something about what was going on inside of them. The students who really cared about it, who, who really did appreciate the, the knowledge that I brought and who really did want to, to throw far, they were really focused when I showed up. The students to whom it was like, it's kind of like, eh, I get out of PE if I'm on the track team, so we'll just, hang out, they responded very differently. And it just reminded me so much of the fact that the way we respond to God, it matters. The way those athletes responded to me, it mattered. It mattered to me, it mattered to their, um, how they were gonna grow and what they were doing. And the way that we respond to God, it matters to God. And it matters in our lives, in our way of being each and every day. Um, worship in its simplest, sense is our response to God. And worship really does matter. So today I have a, a what and a why and a how for us with regards to worship. And that's that. So as you may have guessed, the what is worship. 
not, not a surprise there. Um, but let's look at this first part of the passage. Um, I sat down to, to think through this passage and what I wanted to talk about, and I barely got past this first sentence. Um, May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. So Peter intros his letter um, and then sort of gets into the heart of his letter by starting out by, he starts out by saying, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. And that just floored me because I was like, how, how do we bless God? And I know probably some of us have considered that more than others, but it still kind of baffles me. Like, I feel blessed by God in a number of different ways and for a number of different reasons. But, but me blessing God, it feels very imbalanced. It feels weird. Um, and this word in the Greek, blessed, is not the same as how we, how we see the word used in like the Beatitudes, where like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Um, and it's not the same as when we hear about like the Virgin Mary was blessed by God. It's not the same as that, because those imply that blessing was received from them. They are blessed by God. But this, this way of using this word implies that um, blessing is due because of who God inherently is. So may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed simply because it's due. God is due blessing. So what can we do to bless God? We can worship. We can worship in, with hearts and with minds, with soul, with our bodies. Um, because God is the one that took the initiative, he's the one that reached out to us um, through the whole of this story that we know by creating us and then ultimately by sending his son to be sacrificed for us. Um, that's part of the reason that worship is best considered in terms of response, because we're responding to what God has already done. This is not us starting up something new. It's responding to God taking the initiative. Our God is loving. Our God gives us life. He continues to sustain our lives. Our God, in human form, Jesus came to this earth and paid the ultimate price for us. So we respond by worshiping him. And we give glory to God for who he is and for what he's done. Foundationally, that's what worship is. So, so that's the what of worship. So continuing in the passage, why do we worship? The passage says, on account of his vast mercy, he has given us new birth. You have been born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish. An inheritance that is presently kept safe in heaven for you. Through his faithfulness, you are guarded by God's power so that you can receive the salvation he is ready to reveal in the last time. The passage reminds us of the reasons that we worship God. Um, and those reasons are all, they all kind of come to a head in God's vast mercy. They're all kind of compiled in that short little statement, God's mercy. God's the one that gave us that new life. God's the one that provides the living hope for us. God's the one um, that gives us the opportunity to, to can look ahead to the future and not just be stuck in the present because he's, he's saving that. He's holding that hope for us in heaven. It says that we're born anew into a living hope. 
Um, but before this sort of regeneration of our lives and our souls, there was really not much to look forward to. And big picture, you know, the future, there really wasn't anything to look forward to. But we have ourselves in this new state, this new life, and there is hope. This, this opportunity um, to be excited about what's coming and what is. And this pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish, it keeps us looking ahead. It keeps us from feeling like there's nothing left for us. This doesn't mean that it's the right now is easy or that it's always easy to remember that, but it's there. We can tuck that away. And the way that this word is written out implies this kind of enduring and ongoing inheritance. It's not the same as, like, I received an inheritance as a family member passed away, and maybe it's a huge sum of money, but eventually, no matter how big the sum of money is, it's going to run out. I mean, you could invest it well, and maybe it'll last for some generations, but it's not going to last forever. And that's not what's being talked about. What's being talked about is an inheritance that cannot end. It cannot end. Because God cannot end and does not end. So Peter begins praising God by the mercy of his saving grace. The new life that God gives to his people. And I mentioned before that uh, worship is our response to God because God took initiative. Um, and we, that under, understanding that initiative is more, I think, more nuanced than just saying, oh yeah, God, God did something first. There's a certain mystery to it. Uh, there's this mystery as to like, why? <laughs> why would God do that for us? There's this mystery as to how. Like, we, it's hard to fully understand um, the, the intricacies of what it meant for God to send his son. There's the Trinity piece, the whole father-son piece. The understanding has to start there. But then, but then there's this, this mystery to, to God's decision to do that. Why did he go the route he did? What does it mean to be saved and sanctified? What, there's a certain mystery to it. And in order to start to wrap our minds around that, we have to not only think about the present and be hopeful for the future, but we look at the past. We look to the Old Testament. We look to the way that God presented this new birth to us from the very start. He gave life to creation. He called Abraham to be the father of God's people, his chosen people. And then Moses later responds in faith and leads, frees God's people from enslavement in Egypt. And eventually we get to the covenant that God makes with his people. Our God is a covenant God. And the response that God wanted when he made a covenant with his people, that he would never leave nor forsake them, that they would be his, that they would be God's people. And this covenant is on God's end. Like, this is, the people aren't doing anything. God's just saying, I'm going to do this for you. But there's also this desired response to that. There, it wasn't like God made this beautiful covenant and then it was like, and I don't, really don't care at all how you respond, so just do whatever you're going to do. No, he cared. There is freedom in that, but he does care. There is a response that God desires from us, and that response is for us, is us saying yes. Yes to your love, God. 
Yes, I will receive your love and your grace and your mercy. And yes, I will respond to it. That was God's desire. That's what God wanted from us with this covenant. But the people, as we read through the Old Testament, time after time after time, they were unable to do that. They were unable to say yes to God. They couldn't do it time after time. So enter Jesus. Jesus responded to God's love with a resounding yes on our behalf. So now, the way that we worship as Christians is changed. Because we can say yes now. Because Christ has done that for us. Christ has responded to God's love. Christ has responded to that covenant. And so through Christ now, we're able to say yes over and over and over. We're able to praise we're able to offer thanksgiving. We're able to ask to come before God and ask for things. Because Christ offered that yes for us. And the Holy Spirit empowers us and enlivens us to respond to God's love. And we, and we offer that yes in so many different ways. We say yes by being at church. <laughs> taking the time out to be here. We say yes by physically offering tithes, money, or we say yes by engaging with people in a way that reflects God's love. Continuing on, uh, Peter says, you now rejoice in this hope, even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Your faith is more valuable than gold, which will be destroyed even though it is itself tested by fire. Your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Once again, looking to the future. That praise and that glory and that honor that we offer to God through Christ is something that we can also hope for for our future. But what I think is interesting in the in the New International Version, this is the, the Common English Bible, but in in other translations, um, they phrase that part about your faith being more valuable than gold as the genuine of your the genuineness of your faith is more valuable than. And I think this is implying the same thing, but isn't worded quite the same way. But there's this sense in which it's worth anything to establish the character of your faith. That a, the genuineness of your faith matters. The authenticity, the investment. And part of growing in that genuineness of our faith is by worshiping. Worship is transformational. When we worship, we're changed. We move into closer relationship with God. We move into closer relationship with others. We grow in our understanding. Even if it's a song that we have sung over and over and over, and we know it by heart, or we've been singing it since we were a kid, it can still change us if it's true that we're singing. And if the Holy Spirit is present. 
As one of uh, my professors put it, he said, the purpose of Christian worship is to celebrate the fact that God is working out his purposes in human affairs. Just celebrating what God is doing. And worship serves to form, inform, and transform worshipers. Forms us, and it informs us, and it transforms us. So let's see what I have. Um, so what do we do? We worship. And why do we worship? To respond in thankfulness. To celebrate what God did, and what he is doing, and what he's going to do. What he's promised us. And to offer ourselves, to offer that resounding yes to God through Jesus and to be transformed, to be changed, to not stay the same. So now we get to the how. That's cool. Worship sounds cool. Like, yeah, let's do all those things and be changed. What is, how does that even happen? How do we worship? How do we worship in a way that brings about all of those, those whys that we're talking about? Not brings about, but, you know, the connection there. How do we worship? In two places in the passage that we're talking about, Peter talks about rejoicing. In verse 6, he says, you rejoice in this hope, even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. And he says, toward the end, in verse 8, Although you've never seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you trust him and so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. You are receiving the goal of your faith, your salvation. So first we worship by rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. That's what we do as worshipers. Peter doesn't say that the rebirth he talks about, the being made new, he doesn't say that that means we're just going to be happy. At no point does he say that. That this rejoicing means you have to be happy. But rather he says that by being born again, we're equipped. We're equipped with the ability to see all of life in the light of glory. <coughs> the glory that's been revealed to us. It doesn't mean things are going to be awesome all the time. It doesn't mean that we have to be, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy, that w the way we think joy should feel like. But it, but it means that we're growing in our ability to say there's more. There is more to this. And we recognize that what we're seeing presently isn't the whole picture. It's not the whole story. We look forward to that goal of our faith. That perfect salvation. And that's another part of the mystery. A key word in the entire book of 1 Peter is hope. Throughout the book, he comes back to this idea of hope. And um, throughout the Bible, we know hope to be not, not this idea of like being totally certain or this sort of wishful thinking like, oh, I really hope that happens. And kind of this like, it might not, but I'm just going to really hope for it. That's not the way that hope is presented to us in the Bible. It's presented as this confident expectation. Confidence in who God is and what God has done for us. Confident and expecting those future blessings. 
because they're based on, on facts that we have and what we know of God's promises. And God is a God who keeps his promises. How a church worships reflects what that church believes. I, I truly believe that. How we worship reflects what we believe, and specifically what we believe about who we are and what we're called to do. And then I think that the, the reverse of that is true as well, that what we believe affects how we worship. It goes both ways. Are we a hoping church? Do we worship hopefully and expectantly? And do we worship in a way that expresses to those around us this beautiful mystery of Christ's redemptive work? Is that the way we worship? I hope so. I think so. But I don't think we're perfect at it. We worship through Christ. Christ is both part of the why, because of what he's done for us, but he's also part of the how, because of what he's done for us. He's our mediator. He's, he is the go-between. Uh, our worship is offered on account of what Jesus did, and because he is present and continuing to mediate for us. He not only mediates God's blessings and salvation to us, but he, um, because he was our sacrifice and because he's our advocate, he is also the mediator of human worship. Our worship is mediated by Christ and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 4, it talks about um, Jesus being the high priest. Um, he, Jesus is compared to the high priest kind of throughout that whole uh, book and specifically that chapter. But in verses 14 and 15, it says, Also let us hold on to the confession, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, God's Son. Because we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but instead, one who was tempted in every way that we are, except without sin. The high priest at the time was the person who presented the offerings of the people to God. The people had to go through the priest in order to, to sacrifice anything to God. So without that priest, you really couldn't approach God. You might be doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. You might have the right sacrifice. You might have done everything right. But if you don't have that high priest, that intermediary, you couldn't offer that sacrifice. And so now we have Jesus who is that high priest for us. We don't ever have to worry about another person being the go-between, between us and God. Jesus did that. He established that. He is that for us. He fills that role. And when he was resurrected and he spent some time with his people and then he ascended, he left them with this promise of the Holy Spirit, this promise of another advocate who would be present with them. In the Gospel of John and in Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament, it's time after time, the Spirit enables our worship. The Spirit enables us to worship God. Paul was like, he was all about that. The Holy Spirit is like the primary enabler of our responding to God. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't want to. 
have a feeling it would be not, wouldn't go very well for us. But the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples and enabled them to do what they had been called to do. We can go through all the motions. We can get here on a Sunday and we can sing songs. And we can close our eyes for the prayers. We can speak aloud when the color is yellow and we're supposed to say it out loud. But our witness is dead without the Holy Spirit. And this, what we're doing right here, as many of you might have grown up with, is called the worship service. I'm sure some of you, that was what it was called. Other people, it was just church. But this, what we're doing, is a worship service. The whole thing is worship. And as Dave knows, I can, I can nerd out about this a little bit. Um, I've discovered this kind of new, I don't know if it's new. It was probably there the whole time, but I didn't really realize it was there. This kind of like passion for liturgy. And if you don't know what liturgy is, liturgy is it's basically like the ways that we respond. A lot of people talk about like high liturgy as like if you go into a church where it's a lot of speaking from up front and pre-written prayers and things, people call that liturgy. But really, liturgy is all, all the pieces that go into responding to God. All these parts of worship are liturgy. Uh, we use planning center for our, for our worship service planning. It's like this online tool and you can schedule the people who are going to play and help and you can like order the service and things like that. Um, and I think most of you probably get from me that like, say yes or no on planning center, like accept or decline, I need to know if you're going to be there to help on Sunday. And it's true, planning center is very helpful for scheduling people. But also, like the whole idea is that planning center is a tool to help us plan out these details of worship. Because whether you realize it or not, every piece of a church service is responding to God. Every piece is part of this dialogue that we want to engage in between God and his people. And there's something very sacred about a Sunday morning service. No, it's not like this, if you miss one, then you're a bad Christian. I think I like as a kid, I felt like that was the rule, like you're never supposed to miss church. Um, not because my parents said that exactly, but because like that's how I heard it, was like I have to, I have to be at church or like I'll be bad. But, but there's something sacred about gathering together and saying we're going to take part in all of these different pieces of service together because of what we know they represent and because of what we know they're going to do for us and in us. And there are different parts and pieces to this. Um, we usually sing a song. Once a month we take communion. There are usually prayers and there's this greeting time. And there are these parts that we usually do every Sunday. But really the whole purpose is to give glory to God. And that's what Dave, every single week, is thinking about the Sunday service and thinking, how can we give glory to God? How can we best lift our praises and worship Him? Are we going to worship best by putting this song next to that song? Or by saying these words when we pray together? What's going to be best? Every single part. 
Uh, and through this time and space, part of it's sacred is because in this space, Christ makes the reality of the salvation available to us. Not because it's not available otherwise, but because he's called us to gather together. And because the things that we do on a Sunday morning are reflective of Jesus' life. We do things that Jesus did. We take communion because that's something Jesus did. We baptize because that's something that Jesus did. We give glory to God the Father because that's something that Jesus did. We, we reflect all of these things. We're reflecting Jesus' life. And part of that reality of reflecting Jesus' life is this, the incarnational reality of who Jesus was. Jesus was, in, was God embodied. He was God, God in a body. I don't like that. I don't know why I just said that. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, his embodiment is the example of how we desire to embody worship. Liturgy on a Sunday morning is worship embodied. We have this structure that helps us worship. And, and when we say bring God glory, I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in like what, what looks glorious. So like the more lights and the bigger stage and like that's really glorious. And so we're giving more glory to God, like the bigger and brighter and louder it gets. But that's not what we're talking about. Because our lives are what bring God glory. It's the lives of the worshipers where this true liturgy is experienced. We are the worship team. We call our worship team the music and people who read and things. We call them the worship team. But the reality is that we are all the worship team because worship doesn't happen without all of us here, gathered together. And I know that it's popular and probably somewhat appealing to some of us um, to try and go this route of, I'm gonna be a Christian, but I don't like church. Like, I don't, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I can kind of, you know, like do it on my own and I'll, I'll study and I'll pray and like do all of the things that I would do in church, but I'll do it by myself. But what happens when we gather for this time that we call church, it can't be replicated on our own. And that's not to say that it's bad if you need a break from this space or if you've been hurt by people who call themselves the church. But the things that we do, we can't do that on our own. The times that I have been prayed for by people in this church, I couldn't have experienced that on my own. The times that I've been served communion, I couldn't have done that on my own. Being baptized, I certainly didn't baptize myself. And I wouldn't have wanted to because the people that surrounded me, that showed me that love and encouragement when I experienced that, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. We worship in community. Worship happens with others. And we're brought together by all these things that we do in church that sometimes feel like maybe it's like extra or like too much pomp and circumstance. Like maybe we don't have to do them all exactly the same way. There is space for diversity in the way that we engage with these things. 
But these sort of rites and rituals that we do, they bring us together. We're following this pattern that was set by Christ. And because of that, these actions, these words, these symbols that we have, however they show up, are so much more than like this intellectual thing. And it's so much more than a, just a duty, this moral duty. Well, we're supposed to take communion, so we'll do it. And it's so much more than this emotional inspiration. It's more than all of those things. It's bigger than all of those things. Christ provided us a pattern, a way of engaging with God. And he did that with other people. He did that with his disciples. He showed that to other people. And so we do that. We come together on a Sunday morning because it's really hard to live every moment of every day with other people. So this is our space. And it's sacred. And communion and baptism and prayer and call and response calls to worship and blessing our children when they go. All these different pieces, they're actions and symbols, but they're not only actions and symbols. Um, and the reality is that even outside the church, doing things like that bring people together. So I have this little clip, this little NPR thing that we're going to listen to really quick. It's fascinating about like the way that rituals impact a community or just impact people even if they're not already part of the community. Let's see if it rituals. Oh. Many people practice a ritual or many of them maybe saying the Lord's Prayer at church. It may be wearing fake cheese on your hand and Green Bay Packers day. Whatever your ritual, new research confirms that it can influence the way you think. You're a shock of a doctor that's here to talk to us about it. I shot Percy. Okay, so those rituals that I mentioned express what people believe. Are you going to tell me that the rituals actually influence what people believe? That's exactly what the new research is about, Steve. The, the question that I think social scientists have been grappling with for some time is that rituals are ubiquitous around the world. Uh, whenever you see a behavior that occurs in different places, different times, among people who've had no contact with one another, it tells you there's something in that behavior that's likely woven into the hardware of mind. Woven into the mind, what do you mean by that? Well, I was talking with Nicholas Thompson, he's a PhD student at the University of Toronto. Along with the researchers Michael Norton, Francesca Gino, and Michael Binstead, Thompson recently ran some experiments that measured the effect that rituals have on people. Now, since existing rituals, like wearing the cheese heads for Packers fans, mm -hmm. have complicated cultural meanings, that can be very complicated. <laughs> share money with a partner, but they didn't know whether the partner, in turn, would share money back with them. 
those participants who did do the ritual over the course of the week uh, gave more money or they entrusted more of their own money to fellow weight group members with whom they shared this arbitrary minimal ritual. And they actually ended up entrusting less money to their weight group members with whom they didn't share this ritual. Wait a minute, even this made up ritual became a bonding activity that pulled me together with some people and separated me from others. That's exactly right. If you can get people to do a complicated ritual and have them do it over a repeated period of days, it turns out that this can increase trust and cooperation, and this might be one reason that rituals are so ubiquitous all around the world. Of course, this research is also pointing to the downside of rituals, which is that even when they're completely meaningless and made up, they can cause us to distrust people from groups that do not share the same ritual. And of course, there are 10,000 examples of that all around the world. Shaka, this segment is over, so let's do our regular secret mission. Here's Shaka Vinata, host of the podcast, in Bray. So, this is not to say that the rituals that we do as, as Christians or in church are meaningless and pointless. I hope you're not hearing that. But my point is that even when people do things, like they're saying, even when people do things together that don't have a deeper meaning, it brings them together. It bonds them. Trust is built. So imagine how much more, how much more vast the impact is when the meaning behind what we do comes from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a God who loves us and who saves us and reaches out to us, who shows us his love for children. <laughs> so the things that we do on a Sunday morning are not arbitrary. They come from, and we could talk for a long time about where they come from and, and why we do them. But the, the point is that these things that we do, these rites or rituals, actions, you know, traditions, customs, whatever you want to call it, um, they're both the part of the why and the how. They change us and transform us. And our engagement in them is how we can worship our God. So, um, we do this in community when we're together. We do this by taking part in these pieces. We do this in community by simply being together to encourage one another, to check in, to see how we're doing, to care for one another, to serve each other. And we worship in community past just this space. For us, sometimes that means like past this space as in small group on a weeknight with each other. But I mean, we worship past this space on such a big level. Um, for those of some of you I think know this, but Dave likes to preach from the lectionary now and then, not all the time, but the lectionary is kind of this global um, organization of passages to preach on and to teach. It's really, there's the lectionary calendars out the whole year and says, this Sunday are these passages. This Sunday are these passages. You know, for the season of Easter, these are the passages that we're thinking about. So this passage that we're looking at, this first Peter, there are people all around the world talking about this same passage today, this Sunday. There are people all around the world who, in some way, shape, or form, spoke Psalm 16 together this morning. 
There are people all around the world who, in some way, shape, or form, prayed a really similar prayer to the one we prayed together this morning. We worship in community. Sometimes to the extent that we don't even know how big that is. So, how do we respond to God? Individually and as a church. What does authentic worship and genuine faith look like? In our lives, in our relationships. When we come together and we celebrate the liturgy of a Sunday morning, are we being transformed? Are we allowing ourselves to be changed by the songs we sing, by the prayers that we pray, by the blessing we give our children, by the greeting time when we, when we engage with each other and pass the peace, as some churches call it? Are our rituals on Sunday mornings or at our small groups or in our daily going about our day, are they just going through the motions? Or are we really worshiping in all those spaces? We're moving forward into something new and exciting, becoming a member church of the denomination, of the covenant denomination. Um, how many of us are going to the, uh, what was it called? Annual is not annual. Oh, it is annual. Some of us to represent our church because that's where they say, "Hey, congratulations! You're part of us for real." And it's exciting. It's really exciting. And and we voted on it, and we're all I think we're all looking forward to it in different ways. But I think that it also means that this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time for us to be examining our response to God as we start thinking about different curriculums that we need to come up with as a church, confirmation, as we think about all of those statements about who we are and our mission and do they fit right now. We have an opportunity to really think about the way that we embrace the fullness of worship and consider the ways that we're living out the mystery of Christ's redemptive work, past, present, that mystery is what sets us apart. And our response to that mystery, it sets us apart and it also invites people in to engage with God, just like we have the opportunity to do. So as we move forward in learning about and establishing more of who we are as a church, let's continue to bless God in all the areas of our lives and ministry. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we're here to worship you. We're here to respond to your love and your grace and your mercy. We acknowledge that the authenticity of that fluctuates for us. Some weeks it's harder than others. But we declare that you are good. We declare that you are worthy of our worship. And we declare that this space, this community, is a community that gives glory to you. Please, God, 
be teaching us and helping us to grow in our worship. In our understanding of what it means to worship, in our knowledge of the reasons why we worship, and in our practice, the ways that we live out worship in our lives. Thank you so much for giving us new life, rebirth, for being a resurrected Savior. Thank you that you have promised that you are not going to let our trials be continuing forever, but that you have everlasting hope for us. That our inheritance is never ending. Thank you for hope and for love, for relationship with you and relationship with the people here. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.